Last week we finished chapter 2 um, in Luke. Uh, where Luke, right, he recounts this interesting story. This story of Jesus' early life. The, the only account we have in Scripture of the young Jesus. Uh, and unlike the uninspired apocryphal books that are out there that, are, that read more like DC Comics or Marvel Comics with these fantastic tales of Jesus like cavalierly just arbitrarily maybe, you know, uh, displaying these superpowers that he has. Luke instead details this young, humble Jesus who's aware of his identity. His identity is the unique Son of God who is holy and passionately devoted to his Father and to his Father's will. And it's the same Jesus who existed in eternity past with the Father, with the Holy Spirit, in this loving triune community existing in perfect, perpetual, loving unity with one another. And he's not confused, this Jesus, about who he is, even at a young age, at 12 years old. He's, he's not suffering from some identity crisis. He's not, not had some oppressive, divinely anointed duty that was thrust upon him unwillingly, but he is God, the, the agent of creation, the designer of the cosmos, who established the universe by his power. Right? He's the once bodiless God is now wrapped in human flesh, eternal and infinite and omnipresent, but is now conf confined to space and to time and to aging. And he willfully accepted this human nature and experienced all the limitations that came with it, the weaknesses that come from it. And that's why we learned last week that as the God-man who simultaneously possessed um, deity and um, also possessed human nature, it was necessary for this Jesus to, to grow in understanding and grow physically and, and grow in wisdom and to, to cultivate this, this thriving relationship with the Father that, that's fueled by this mutual love so that he can fulfill his mission to save sinners. Like us, he experienced weakness. He experienced fatigue and pain. And yet, unlike us, he was unstained by sin. And the incarnation that we celebrate this time of year, this Christmas season, is, is a phenomenon that's unique in the history of, of, of mankind. It's beyond anything that's that it can, it can be compared to. Nothing like it has ever happened before, and there's no adequate illustration that can explain it in, 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 in a way or, or its unique qualities. Nothing can replicate the incarnation. It's, and it's an important work that, that, he, that he wrote. Athanasius, one of the, the church fathers, wrote this in his, his book, On the Incarnation. He has been manifested in a human body for this reason only, out of the love and goodness of His Father for the salvation of us men. End quote. And I highly recommend that book. It's a short one, but it's, it's just replete with a lot of helpful insight as to what the incredible nature of the Incarnation really is. And this week, we're, as Pastor Lou mentioned, it's really a continuation of all the way back in chapter 1, verse 80, that ended by saying, as the, And this child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. And that person, that child that grew, is John, the son of Zechariah, also known as John the Baptist, as we'll find this week. And we're going to learn that the role that John played in, in bridging that, uh, that the promises of the Old Testament and bringing it into its fulfillment in Christ Jesus. Admittedly, John's a little odd. He's an odd guy. He's a little bit eccentric. In their Gospels, 
Matthew and Mark tell us that not only did John live in the wilderness, but he also wore camel's clothes or, or camel's hair, clothes made from camel's hair, and a leather belt around his waist, and he lived on the staple diet of locusts and wild honey. I mean, put bluntly, John's a weird dude even by the standards of his own day. And Jesus himself even commented on John's attire and his diet, and we'll see as we get to Luke chapter 7, 24 to 35, he's acknowledging that John's appearance caused some to question his sanity. Some even thought that he was demon-possessed. But we find that Scripture says that God knew exactly what he was doing by putting John where he was. And that at the divinely determined time, God called and sent his appointed servant, John the Baptist, to fulfill his divinely appointed role as the prophetic forerunner of the Messiah who would both proclaim and prepare the world for the arrival of God's salvation to the preaching of, of the message of repentance. I put that up on the screen because that's a mouthful. So, but that's, that's, where, that's what our text is telling us this morning. And what we'll also see is that the repentance that he preached is a repudiation, a turning away from sin, and preparation for God's forgiveness accompanied by godly living. And we'll investigate this in greater detail through the scripture this morning by looking at it in three different parts. John's context and his calling in verses 1 through 3. And then we'll see John's ministry and his message in verses 3 through 6. And finally, we'll, we'll, we'll end by looking at John's confrontation and his counsel to those who came to be baptized in verses 7 through 14. So let's first look at John's context and his calling in verse 1 through 3. Luke opens up this, this chapter, this new section. It's obvious by the way he, that, the way he writes it. And he gives a breakdown of the political and religious power structures that are, in, uh, that are in place during John's day, during his public ministry, as he comes to, uh, into his public ministry. First, he lists these governing hierarchies, being at the very top, talking, telling us that the Roman emperor at the time was Tiberius Caesar, and he ruled over the entire empire, the Roman Empire. And that included where they were living in Jerusalem. And the empire was divided also into little provinces along the way, and Pontius Pilate, we see, managed one of these provinces, and he shared his responsibility of managing those provinces with tetrarchs. And they're named here, Herod, Philip, and Lysanias. And he also goes on to list here the religious leaders of his day as well, Annas and Caiaphas. They were the high priests. But we see other biblical texts and also even um, extra-biblical writings, historical documents, demonstrate that Caiaphas really was the one who was the great high priest that was acting at that time. There's only one high priest, and he was the high priest at the time. Annas was actually Caiaphas's father-in-law. He was formerly a high priest, but he, as we see here by him being named, shows that he maintained a, a, still a level of authority and influence that was going on behind the scenes, behind the religious leaders at the time. And Luke mentions these historical details to remind us that these events that are playing out, that are unfolding, occurred in a specific cultural context, right? They're not divorced from a place in time. They're not somewhere in a galaxy far, far away or once upon a time. They happened at a particular time in history. And previously, Luke included this, his, his historical details in chapter 1. 
as well. So he has a tendency of doing this. He mentions uh, Gabriel coming and visiting Zechariah in the days of Herod. It says in verse one, in chapter one, verse five, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, while he was priestly, in the, when he was on his priestly division, as he was on duty in the temple. He then also in, in chapter two makes mention of historical account of when Mary and Joseph traveled to Bethlehem. And the reason they did that was to, uh, they were told um, that they had to show up there to register by decree of Emperor Caesar Augustus, who was reigning over the empire at the time. And by referencing these historical markers, Luke's underscoring the, impor the importance of this event. Something was happening at a particular time in history that he wanted to make sure he was cap capturing everybody's attention, saying this is an important event that was taking place. And what event was taking place? Well, we can see that by looking at the second part of verse 2. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. God had spoken. And he had sent a prophet now to declare his word to the world. It's very clear here what Lewis, Luke is trying to communicate, or what he's communicating here. He's saying that John was a prophet that was sent by God. And if you look closely, John, uh, Luke is borrowing some, some literary devices that he's found, not just in in, um, in historians, Greek historians, that, that, would, that would give a lot of great detail of historical events that were going on, but also Old Testament scriptures as well. Let's see if you can spot some examples. I, I, there's tons of examples in the Old Testament. I'm just going to give you a few that you can look at. But see if you can pick up what, what's, what's going on here and what Luke is doing. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who were in Anathoth, in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, the king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. Now in Ezekiel, in the thirteenth year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles of the Cheber Canal, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest. Now look at Zechariah chapter 1. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah. And then lastly, the very last book of the Old Testament, as it's closing, making way for the New Testament, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. And do you see what's going on here? In, in these, in these uh, repeated um, events here and these repeated uh, terminology, God's now acting again in history. Right For a long time there had been this, this radio silence from heaven and now these, after all these years, years that had turned from years to decades now into centuries, there had been no prophets, no prophets for 400 years. But now God's revealing his word to this man named John from Zechariah, the, the son of Zechariah, not to cultural, or political, or even religious influencers of the day, the ones that he had just named, but now God's disclosing his message for all of humanity to, from all outward appearances, a weird, off-the-grid living wilderness wanderer, John the son of Zechariah. And he, John, spoke with greater level of authority that was granted to him by the sovereign God of the world than the emperor of the most dominant nation of the world at the time. 
And for all we know, John lived in obscurity for all this time that he was in the wilderness. Right? We don't know anything about his childhood. We don't hear anything about his adolescence, his coming of age. But what we do know is that in God's appointed time, he called John to fulfill a very specific role that was once first predicted by the angel Gabriel and by the, and by the spirit-filled prophecy of his father before him. If you look back in chapter, in chapter 1, he was told by his, his father as the Holy Spirit led him that John would be the prophet of the Most High that would go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation of the, uh, to, uh, to all the peoples for the forgiveness of sins. This shows that God had not forgotten his people, but he was actually now, after a time, mercifully moving toward them. And God was making good on his promise, promise that reached even further back than, than, than John's own parents. If you look all the way back, 700 years in the past, the prophet Isaiah spoke a message of comfort to his people. They needed words of comfort at the time. If you go back and you look at, we did a sermon series on, on, the, on the, the book of Isaiah. I, I definitely recommend you go back and listen to that, especially the one on, on chapter 40, which goes along with this. But they needed words of hope at the time. They had already experienced God's judgment in part with the split of the kingdom, and it was, this was done because of their rebellion against God. The split of the kingdom in between a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom that eventually caused, that led to the destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel. And God was going to now discipline them further by sending Judah into captivity, the hands of the Babylonian Empire, and they were going to be exiled from their nation state, from, their, from the, the land of promise that God had given them, now for an entire generation outside those bounds, under the oppression of Babylon. But God was reminding them that his discipline was just temporary. And that it was meant to purge them of their self-dependency. It was meant to purge them from their sins of idolatry. And what he was doing is he's preparing them for his salvation. And Isaiah's vision would come to pass. John, Judah would eventually be released from bondage. And they would return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and to rebuild the city walls. And this exodus coming out of Babylon, going back to their home, this great mighty act of God himself, this divine deliverance, was a picture. It was a shadow of a, of a greater salvation that was to come. One that would be inaugurated by the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And Luke here is reminding us of that. John is the, the one that's prophesied by Isaiah who would declare an important message. This message of God's salvation and it's on his way. God is on his way with his salvation. And John, in obedience, he filled the role. He went forth in the Holy Spirit's power and he declared how people can ready themselves for God's coming salvation. And that was through repentance. And Isaiah's metaphor that he used here that John is, is a repeating is a rich one. It's a rich metaphor that, that just underscores the message that, that John's bringing forth. It was common in that day for citizens to prepare a way for a dignity, for a king to come into their city, their province, and, that, and they would construct 
new highways, new roadways, and make sure things were leveled out and cleared so that they would ensure a safe passage of the king all the way into their city. In the same way, what John's teaching us is that we are also called to construct a wide and clear on-ramp for God's forgiveness. And that is through repentance, turning away from our sin. That's the center of John's message. He's calling people to repentance. God's salvation, His his forgiveness that He's offering, it can't flow freely into our hearts if it's filled with obstructions, sin's obstructions in the form of these deep valleys or these high mountains or these treacherous gravel highways. Verse 18 calls John's message a message of good news, and that's precisely what it is. It's a gospel message. It's the gospel. It's sin. It's, it, is an, it's first bad news. That this, this gospel tells us that sin is an attitude of rebellion. It's an infectious disposition of hatred toward God. It corrupts all of our being. It corrupts our reasons. It corrupts our emotions, our behaviors. It affects every aspect of our being. And it's unless we have the intervention of of a great physician, this contagion of sin is going to just completely destroy us. It's going to unravel itself. It's going to wreck our lives, our relationships, and ultimately it's going to destine us for an eternity in hell. But God, the good news part of the gospel, God is is that great salvation, the great physician, who has graciously supplied us with a remedy. Amen? And it begins with a call to repentance. Repentance goes beyond simply acknowledging or or even feeling emotional remorse for sins. It's, It's a conscious decision to abandon sin, to turn away from it, and to turn to God. It's putting sin behind you and putting God in front of you. It's an acknowledgement that there's nothing that we can do to procure or, or earn our forgiveness for our sins. Repentance is that prerequisite for forgiveness. And forgiveness can only be offered by the offending party. Right? By the offended party. And the only one, the only one who has the right and the power to forgive the infinite debt that we owe for our sin is God Himself. And so when we, when we repent of sin, we're, we're expressing a faith, a faith in Him that says, I'm leaving behind all in my life that I believed would save me, that would satisfy me, and I'm trusting the salvation that can only be found in God alone. That's a heart that's moved by the grace of God. That's a heart that is prepared to receive forgiveness. And that's a heart that God will forgive And for John, we see repentance and forgiveness are inseparable. The repentance that he preached prepared the people for the personification of salvation. And that is in the person of Jesus Christ. Now let me point out this unique feature of Luke's gospel here um, as he's repeating these words from Isaiah. Matthew and Mark also quote this in their Gospels, 
They, they quote Isaiah 40, 3 through 4, but only Luke includes, interestingly, verse 5, particularly the point that says, All flesh shall see the salvation of God. And what we'll see here and throughout the book, throughout his gospel account, is that there's this universal nature of God's mission. And that's why we titled the sermon series Luke mission to the world. God will fulfill his mission to save sinners no matter their area code. Right? His grace and mercy extend beyond the River Jordan where John preached, beyond Jerusalem, and even beyond the borders of the then powerful Roman Empire. In heaven, God's people will be represented and they will represent all backgrounds, all tribes, all nationalities and ethnicities. Thankfully, God's people will be represented by also the timelessness of the gospel, right? It extends beyond not only the boundaries of place, but also of time. The gospel that John preaches is relevant today. And the question that we should be asking ourselves is, have we, have you, have I prepared my heart for God's salvation? We're all sinners in need of God's grace. And the good news is that if you repent of sin and turn to Christ, He will forgive your sin. He will grant you eternal life with Him. And we see in this text that John's call to repentance is also accompanied by baptism. See, that's why he earned the title John the Baptist, right? It is not exactly the type of baptisms that we uh, perform and practice today that follow a a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. But remember, John's preaching before the the cross, before Christ's coming. He's, He's preparing people for Christ's coming. We live now after the cross. But what we do know is that John's baptism was not meant to cleanse people of their sins. Although we will see in just a moment that there were some who showed up to John's preaching, heard his message, And they wanted to be baptized because they thought that it would remove their guilt or that it would somehow gain favor with God, ensure them God's salvation to them. But no, John's baptism was a a physical sign. It was a representation, a demonstration of one's desire within their heart, a commitment to repent of sin, turn away from sin in order to receive the forgiveness of God. And we see that word was getting out. It was getting out all over the place about this baptism that John was performing in his his message of repentance. So we see here, as we move to to verses 7 through 14, that John's now going to confront those who did show up. And he's going to counsel those who had valid questions as to what it meant to, to live a life of repentance. And we see here, and the other Gospels, that John's ministry was popular in the Jordan River region, but yet it went far beyond that as well. You can see that in Matthew chapter 3 and Mark chapter 1. We have time to look at that this morning, but you can look there on your own. He was drawing crowds that, for people that were in Judea and Jerusalem, and they wanted to hear this, this message. Their ears were attuned to what was going on. It was, some, it was a major event to, to, that needed to be seen if not only just to see the man himself in his garb, right? And what he looked like. 
But not all who wanted to, to show up to, this, to John's message that wanted to be baptized were truly repentant. Some believed that they could escape God's righteous wrath by just this act of baptism rather than having genuine heartfelt repentance for their sin. But John, we see, harshly rebukes them and he borrows the wilderness imagery that's around him. Remember, he's living in the wilderness. So he's borrowing the imagery that's around him, but he also knows his scripture and he's, he's borrowing from scripture to confront their hardness of heart by calling them a brood of vipers. In the Old Testament, God's enemies were at times called snakes. In fact, so those in Israel were at times called snakes. John's exposing here the poison and deceit that's in their hearts. They have no desire to turn from their sins, but instead they, they respond like snakes do that are, that are trying to slither away out of their holes to escape the brush fire. They're only concerned with saving their own skin by, by fleeing God's wrath, getting away from it somehow, not actually turning to Him in faith or salvation or to worship Him for who He is. They want to save their own skin and they want to re retain their own lifestyle of sin. They don't want to change their identity. But John's baptism, as we see, was not a just get out of hell free card. It's not what it was meant to do. They thought they were clever. They thought they had found some kind of a workaround. Repentance. But John harshly criticizes them but, as we can see, lovingly corrects their theology. Genuine repentance, he says, bears fruit. There's physical, there, I'm sorry, there's, there's visible evidence of a heart that's abandoned sin and has turned to Christ. And fruit is a sure sign of a healthy tree, right? When we see a tree with fruit, we think that's a healthy tree. And it says that looks appetizing when you look at the edible fruit that's there. A healthy apple tree produces edible apples. Repentance of the heart is accompanied then by good deeds. Put another way, godly living is the product of a heart that has turned from its former appetite for sin to a delight in God. Let me say that again. Godly living is a product of a heart that has turned from a former appetite of sin to a delight in God. Others in the crowd we see had another way they're trying to find a workaround for repentance. They believed that their ancestry, that their religious heritage would excuse them somehow from God's judgment. They trusted instead on their identity as descendants of Abraham. And as one commentator put it, they blatantly rested on the merits of godly Abraham whose blood coursed through their veins. Quote, God certainly would not break his covenant. He needed them to be its recipients. End quote. So all the way back in Genesis chapter 15, we see when God made a covenant with a man named Abram, who was later renamed Abraham, which means father of many nations, God has promised this man, Abraham, that he was going to build from him a great nation that would grow as, as vast as the stars in the sky and it would bring God's favor, His salvation to all the world. It wouldn't just stay within one nation. It would be divulged to all nations. And that nation that came from Abraham was a nation that, was, is, that became Israel. 
a nation that God had for generations had blessed them. He also frequently would discipline them for their good, all the while remaining faithful to his, his, his covenant, his covenantal love, his loyalty to them. And God promised Abraham and his descendants that a day was coming when a king would arrive that would vanquish all of their foes and it would set up a, a kingdom of perpetual peace on earth. Some of the people in the crowds, they knew that. They believed that the call to repentance didn't apply to them because of their Jewish heritage, because of what Abraham had done, who he was. They weren't, re they weren't required to turn from sin, they thought, because their DNA had qualified them for God's salvation. But when you think about it, think of, think of the audacity of that statement, of that belief system. They actually believed that God was obligated somehow to save them. They thought that their situation was this, this loophole in God's covenantal loyalty to his people. That God would not, in fact, they would say, God could not punish them because his promise was made to their forefathers. Men that, by the way, their forefathers were men who repented of their sin and actually threw themselves on the mercy of God. And it is true, right? It is true that God's character will not allow him to lie, to sin, to break his covenant to his people that he had made that he would save them. And that's precisely why he sent John to begin with, right? To, to, to bring into fulfillment his promise to them. In fulfillment of his promise, God sent John to announce the coming of salvation in the person and work of Jesus Christ. But what they had forgotten is that salvation that God offers is deliverance from the personal bondage of sin. Each of us is individually culpable for our own rebellion and our sin against the Holy God. Sin separates us from God, from His blessed presence, and it invites His wrath upon us. And if it's not for God's gracious intervention on our behalf, the gift of salvation in His Son Jesus Christ, then we would inevitably suffer the consequences of our rebellion for eternity. And what John's pointing out here is that God's people, true descendants of Abraham, share His faith not his genetics. God's people have always been those who have humbly repented of their sin and worship him in spirit and in truth. And if the earth ever lacked, ever lacked a population of godly men and women, those who follow after Abraham's footsteps, John stating that God would still keep his promises because he could even turn these inanimate stones into children of Abraham that he would bless. In other words, they were not irreplaceable. And in other words, God's grace is amazing, right? God's going to show mercy even to those who, to us, maybe appear the least likely candidates of his grace the least likely to be recipients of His grace. God is going to choose those of His good pleasing. And praise God, nothing's going to prevent Him from accomplishing these, these redemptive plans that He has in store and to relinquish them, to bestow them in the way that He pleases. Amen? 
John then proceeds to warn the crowds of their, their spiritual precariousness by using this graphic imagery of this axe that's, that's, that's this axe blade that's poised and it's ready to slice through the root of a tree. Not good, fruitful trees, the kind that demonstrates a, a repentant heart. One that is, that is uh, soft to, to, to the call to repent. But John likens them to these unhealthy trees that are only fit to be cut down and to be used as firewood. And we see here in this analogy, this, this graphic imagery, this metaphor, this unmistakable reference to the flames of God's judgment. Those who refuse to repent will experience the due penalty for their sin, the punishment that fits the ultimate hate crime of sin, which is hell. God's message to the crowd was clear. Unless they exchanged their cleverness, their identity with the heart of repentance, they would stand condemned before God and experience His fierce judgment. And the same is true today. So the question that we need to ask ourselves is, what's keeping us? What's keeping you from turning from your sin? Is it your own cleverness? Maybe it's gotten you pretty far in life, even bought you success by the world's standards, but... It won't absolve you from your sin and your pride. It can't bring you into right relationship with God, the God that made you, the one that we all will stand before to give an account for the way that we have lived in His created world, in His universe. Or maybe you're depending on your identity, one that you've spent your lifetime tweaking and developing. Can you honestly say based on the image that you've built, that God is obligated to save you? That He's obligated to accept you, to love you? God's love and His favor, it, it can't be earned, it can't be demanded. It's offered freely in Christ. It's offered freely in Christ for all those who repent of sin and have a repentant heart and turn to Christ. And so, my message this morning is repent, turn from your sin, turn to Christ. The one that God sent to bestow salvation from sin, Satan, and from hell. And like any good sermon, John's preaching elicits a response from the crowd. They ask, what then shall we do? What can we do now with, with the information that you've given us? In other words, what does it mean for me to bear fruit in keeping with repentance? Practically speaking, what does it mean to, to, to live a life of repentance? And John made it clear that repentance demanded action. It meant more than just getting dunked in the Jordan River. It required a new way of life. And every answer that John gives to this crowd, this mixed crowd, this mixed audience, is the same even though it applies in different ways to each of the different groups. But his, his message is, the evidence of a heart that has truly embraced repentance is a, is a love for other people. John tells the crowds to, to share food, to share clothing with those who are in need. The tunic that John's talking about was, was that one that would be uh, worn as a shirt underneath a larger cloak. It was the closest piece of, of clothing to your body. And our tendency is to selfishly hoard the good gifts that God's given us, isn't it? Right? Even the most basic necessities to keep them for, the, for ourselves. In fact, we've 
actually de- designed whole industries of luxurizing. It's, not a, it's a word I made up. It's not a real word, but luxurizing necessities to add them to our collections. But a heart that's been transformed by the gospel of God is, is generosity. His generosity, his gospel of generosity is itself produces generosity in us. It, it views people with dignity and value rather than as just objects. And repentance should influence how we care for those who were in need. Tax collectors showed up too. They were interested in finding out about what baptism meant and what repentance was. And they were the most hated, despised, and often the most wealthy even, members of society. They actually are the only ones here that call John teacher, interestingly. They show their respect to John as a teacher. You were probably wearing designer clothes while, ironically, they're learning from this guy who's wearing rough, itchy, ugly camel hair. They're known, though, these people, the tax collectors, for hiking up the taxes that they collected and they taxed for everything you could, you could imagine. And they would do this to line their pockets to make themselves rich. He doesn't tell them to, to leave their occupation, to not be a tax collector, tax collector, but he tells them, and instructs them to, to practice their profession with honesty and fairly, with integrity. We'll see an example of this when we get to chapter 19 with tax collector Zacchaeus, who was changed when he came into an interaction with Jesus and Jesus' message came face to face with the Savior of the world. So repentance and the gospel should influence how we conduct our business affairs. Similarly, John then tells the soldiers who acted as like the law enforcement of the day not to extort money. He tells them to stop employing violent and manipulative and, and threatening means to supplement their income to, or, or to garner some kind of, of power that they could leverage on those they were serving. And that day, it was very little that you could do to hold a soldier accountable for any injustices that they that they, uh, they performed. So we see that genuine repentance here, once again, a heart that has been changed by the gospel is marked by deep concern for the welfare of other people. And there are at least, we could see here, two principles, probably a lot more, talk about these ones in community group though, these two, at least, that John's demonstrating by his answers to these questions as he's counseling them. First, we see the extent of, of repentance. It goes far beyond the surface level. It, it, it impacts all of our lives. And just be, it, because sin itself touches every part of our being, so also must forgiveness touch every part of our being. Where sin hides in the shadowy recesses of our heart, it must be rooted out. It must be exposed to the healing light of Jesus Christ and His power. The Westminster Confession of Faith states this in in regard to repentance. It says, Men ought not to content themselves with a general repentance, but it is every man's duty to to endeavor to repent of particular sins particularly. End quote. Is the Holy Spirit maybe even now indicating 
in, your, in, in you that is a thought or a feeling or a habitual behavior that needs to be confessed, that needs to be destroyed through repentance and faith in Christ. Don't wait any longer. Flush it out of your system and experience the forgiveness that comes and the freedom that comes in the gospel. <coughs> Excuse me. Another principle that we can learn from John's answers to these questions is the perpetual nature of repentance. The reformer Martin Luther wrote in his 95 Theses, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. We are on a lifelong journey together, but on a lifelong journey toward holiness, toward Christ-likeness. It's how we grow in our love for God. It's how we grow in our love for other people. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, we'll get there eventually, Luke 6.40, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Desire of every heart that has been awakened to the beauty and the glory of Christ is to know Him intimately, to love Him more, more deeply, to, to be like Him. And we continue to battle sin and we endeavor to bring every aspect of our lives in submission to Christ under His Lordship. All thoughts and decisions and motivations and relationships and careers and recreation and entertainment and our parenting and our voting and our communication and the list goes on and on and on. Our pursuit of Christ-likeness, tempered by wisdom, will help us determine what we should engage in, what we should participate in, and what we should refrain from. In other words, it influences how we worship with our lives our Lord Jesus Christ. We understand now, obviously, after Christ's coming, after His, his life, His death, His resurrection, His ascension, that's the Holy Spirit now that, that produces the, the fruit of repentance in the heart of those who yield to Him. And now, we've been hinting at, hinting at this all along, it's really important, it deserves our full attention, that we see that John's ministry was to prepare the world for the personification of God's glorious salvation, and that is only in Jesus Christ. In fact, we've already mentioned in, their, in our series, in this series, that Jesus' name means God is salvation. What a befitting name for the Son of God who came 2,000 years ago from heaven and took on human nature to seek and to save the lost. And Jesus stood there. He stood before the very same authorities that Luke mentions in the opening of this chapter. He stood silent before the high priests, Annas and Caiaphas. And the sinless Son of God was falsely charged and indicted for blasphemy. He stood before Herod and then before Pilate. The only truly innocent person who ever lived and, traded, and was traded for a murderer named Barabbas. And all this, all this that transpired was all part of God's magnificent plan of redemption. And these authorities, these great men, they thought were great, they thought they were great, these authorities unwittingly played right into God's hand by, when they sent Jesus to the cross. Because as He hung on the cross, beaten and bruised and thirsty and struggling to breathe, Jesus suffered, not only at the hands of sinners, but also underwent the judgment of God for the sins of the entire world. Jesus went to the cross in our place and He bore the weight of all of our collective sins 
and endured the punishment that we deserve. And his, his death was not a defeat. Well, it, it wasn't his defeat. It was the, the defeat of sin, Satan, and death. And his bloodshed procured our forgiveness. He was victorious in his mission. And now, the question is, will you come? Will you come and now be forgiven because of what Christ has accomplished for you? Will you repent of sin? Will you trust in the atoning work of Jesus Christ who suffered in your place? Don't wait. Today is a day of salvation. And if you're a believer, does your faith in Christ, is your love and devotion to Him evident in your life? We're, not all, we're obviously not perfect. We still are on this journey of sanctifying work of, of, of the Holy Spirit as we become more and more like Christ. We're all in different places on our journey, but we're all in constant need of God's grace. Is there a change in your life? Has there been a change in your life? Do you see it? Do, are others telling you about it? Have you asked others? Is there a growing desire in your life to, to live a life that's pleasing to God? A desire to tell others about the good news, about the gospel? I encourage you, I encourage this is encouragement to myself as well. Take inventory of our lives. And in, in any sin that owns you, surrender it to the Lordship and experience the freedom that comes only in Christ. The joy and the freedom of forgiveness in Him. Father, we thank You for this glorious text of Scripture. We thank You for Your heart that loved us even in our fierce and white-knuckled rebellion against You. You came, You intervened in our behalf, You initiated a plan that You know was a great cost to Your Son, but it's a free gift that we can experience and so, Father, we, we pray that you would work in all of our hearts, me included, and you would help us to weed out the sin that's there, that we would trust in you as the one who can, who can destroy sin, nothing that we can do on our own. And that just as we rely on the grace to save us, we rely on your grace to continue to change, transform us, and sustain us from moment to moment, day to day. We confess that, and we turn to you, and we ask for... Um, your continued grace in our lives. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.